Today we're going to be talking about um, new methods of pest control in New Zealand. It's a special place not just because of the organisms that live here, which are you know, usually unique and endemic, but also uh, because of the, the people of New Zealand. And so when we think about pest controls and new technologies, we can't necessarily just import what is happening overseas because it may not apply for our environment, it may not apply appropriate for our people, it may not be appropriate for the way we wish to, to behave as New Zealanders. And so I think it's, it's really important to, to recognise, you know, there's, there's 80,000 species in New Zealand not found anywhere else in the world. Many of them are threatened by introduced pests. 4,000 of our native species are on the threatened species list. So that's, that's a big problem. Uh, if we look at um, the reports of the Ministry for the Environment, it's now the case that non-native plant species outnumber natives, and stoats, possums, and rats are present on more than 94% of New Zealand land. That was in, in 2014, and you, know, you can't stop rats, so it's probably larger than it is now. I would characterise that as not winning. We are not winning the fight against pests and diseases in New Zealand, and we have a remarkable and important set of fauna and flora here that are threatened. And so we come uh, to the point of, you know, how are we going to deal with this? So one, one thing that's happened is in, in 2016, the government announced uh, the goal of eradicating possums, stoats and rats from the country, and that's the predator-free 2050 um, approach, the, the predator-free 2050. That's great, and, you know, it wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of possums, stoats and rats, but we also know that there are lots of other pests in the country. I, I, there's a guy who lives down the road from me who I wouldn't mind getting rid of, but um, there are... Uh, wasps, uh, which um, eat uh, honeydew and attack our, our bee industry. There are invasive sea squirts, which block up our harbours. There are all kinds of things. And uh, these are all wicked problems. And I think biology is filled with wicked problems that are really difficult to deal with. I think there are uh, signs of hope, right? If you look at our predator-free uh, sanctuaries, the, the places where enormous amounts of effort have been put into stopping predators getting or killing predators in those sanctuaries and stopping predators getting in, we can see that our nature does recover. So that removing predators seems like a, a sensible approach. But when you move from something the size of Orokanui to something the size of Stewart Island or something the size of the South Island or indeed the whole country, we have bigger challenges. And so it may be the case that we need to think about new technologies. Now, the technologies we're discussing tonight are gene editing and gene drives. And these are technologies that um, spring out of the Nobel Prize winning work of Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, won the Nobel Prize in 2014 for their work on gene editing. So gene editing is a remarkable technology. Uh, last two, uh, two weeks ago, a paper was published which showed gene editing could be used to cure a previously incurable, fatal and painful liver disease uh, just using a gene editing approach. So it has remarkable possibilities in uh, medical technologies but it also has possibilities in, in the environment. Gene drives are a much more complex uh, uh, use of that technology, and, and um, they, are, they haven't been implemented anywhere, but they are promising in lab studies. So these technologies are out there. They have been shown to be effective in certain situations, and so I think it's important for us as a society to start thinking about are these the technologies um, that, we want to, um, that we want to use. So Predator-Free 2050 is a huge, uh, it's an ambitious uh, initiative. It will judging from our mainland sanctuaries, help protect our treasured native species. Um, but tonight we're going to have a little chat about how it is this is going to, how this is going to happen. Okay, I do want to uh, introduce my fantastic um, 
uh, panel today. We're going to start with Tame Malcolm uh, down the end here. So Tame is a knowledge broker for the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge. So the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge is a has been tasked by uh, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment to research in this area, particularly looking at, at, at how we might better protect our biological heritage. Tame is also from uh, Titira Whakamataki, which is the Maori Biosecurity Network, a, a fantastic organisation that tries to bring an indigenous viewpoint to biosecurity in New Zealand. Thanks for coming down. Uh, next to Tame is Professor Phil Lester uh, from Te Haranga Waka, the Victoria University of Wellington. Phil is a, a long-term uh, advocate of killing wasps. Uh, he does it in his spare time. <laughs> he studies uh, population dynamics and ecology of social insects, which of course uh, invasive wasps are, and uh, has researched molecular genetic approaches that include gene silencing and next generation sequencing to build technologies to better control uh, these kinds of insects. So, uh, Professor Phil Lester. It's a real delight for me to uh, welcome Araha Mead uh, to the panel. So Araha is a political scientist who specialises in Mataranga Māori and indigenous cultural and intellectual property issues with an interest in indigenous perspectives on technologies such as gene editing. Uh, I uh, particularly value Araha's uh, fantastic work on the IUCN Task Force on Conservation and Synthetic Biology where she has been uh, a tireless advocate both for an indigenous voice in those international communities, but also a voice for New Zealand. And she has recent publications on examining gene editing in New Zealand, which I think is a, a really cool publication, came out in Frontiers of Genetics uh, a week or so ago, and on decolonizing the conservation system. So, Arahamid. <laughs> and, and finally, but, but not least, uh, Brent Bevan, who is on two pages, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Brent has 20 years of experience working in conservation and has been an advisor for the Ministry of Conservation and is currently program manager for Predator Free 2050 at the Department of Conservation. <laughs> Jolly good. I wanted to start with uh, uh, perhaps Brent. Um, to ask you what uh, current methods that are being used for pest control in, in our conservation state and how effective are they? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I love starting off. Um, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think there's any surprises for people. There are, all the current pest control tools are, are things we've had for quite a long time. You know, it's either, it's either traps or it's toxins or, um, or people shooting things. And that's, that's pretty well it. So traps are very old technology and they're slowly evolving, but you've still got to get a trap in every location where an animal is if you want to eradicate or control them. And toxins are, um, our biggest toxin application on a landscape scale is, um, is using aerial 1080, and that's it's useful, but, but we still only do a fraction of New Zealand. It's not really enough to prevent biodiversity loss. As I often say, I've been, um, I've seen the whole last biodiversity strategy go through and, and um, with the simple element of uh, reversing the decline or stopping the decline, um, we didn't achieve that. And so despite all of our current investment and all of our current tools, well, we're, we're on the cusp, I think, of, of making some big new steps in what we do. We're, um, we're still um, only protecting stuff in places. And I think the, my reflection on 25 years in conservation would now be that you only actually have native wildlife where we do some pest control. And if we don't do pest control, it's pretty well gone. Given that response, do you think that Predator Free 2050 is, is achievable with the current tools we have? No, no. I, I, I think it's achievable with the tools we're developing, 
it would probably be faster or easier with gene editing, but I think we could still achieve it without gene editing. Okay. So it sounds like gene editing is, is a possibility here. I did want to ask the question uh, previously. How many people in the if you just put your hand up, if you have gene edited anything? I had two sons, does that count? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask uh, Phil to uh, tell us what gene editing and gene drives uh, are and how they might be used in, in pest control. Gene editing is something that's used all around the world at the moment. Right? So in terms of, of genetic engineering, um, there are around 190 million hectares around the world of crops that have been gene edited. And a lot of those crops uh, are doing things like uh, providing some resistance against some pests. Um, they've got some genes inserted in them from bacteria so that they produce a, a toxin that that bacteria normally uh, produces. Now the plant produces it as well. And that deters some, some herbivores. So, so that technology is being really widespread used. And it's even being used in terms of pest control for insects um, in Florida right now. So in Florida right now, there's, there's um, mosquito populations that, that have been bred in the laboratory that are being released. Um, those mosquitoes, once they get out of the laboratory, the progeny only are males. I think it's only a males. Um, so as a consequence, the, the anything that those mosquitoes mate with become males, the population dwindles and dwindles and, and, and dies. And that's actually an approach that's being considered in Australia at the moment. Some of you might be familiar with the mice plagues that are, that are happening in Australia at the moment. Um, so that's one option that, that, that the Australian government is thinking about and has funded. And actually uh, organisations such as PETA have come out and said they support that much more than they do spreading around toxins and, and that sort of thing. So, so that gene editing is, is already being used around the world. Gene drives are a little bit different. So gene drives involve uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Again, it's something we've borrowed from bacteria. So this is a, a bacterial way of, of, of gaining resistance against viruses. Um, so it's a natural thing that, that these bacteria populations have done over the time. They uh, take a little bit of the, the viral genome, they have an enzyme system that, that inserts that, that little bit of the, the virus genome into their uh, DNA, and that um, then the expression of that gives them resistance against those viruses that they come along in future. The scientist that, that, that Peter mentioned early on that won a Nobel Prize for this uh, uh, earlier this century, they realised the potential of that and, and it now allows us to take uh, a small piece of, of DNA, uh, a larger piece of DNA, insert it in the genome of a species and then uh, that enzyme system and the DNA is then transferred onto all chromosomes, with, with both chromosomes within the organism and then to all the offspring down the, the line. So then, anything that that individual mates with has that genetic modification. Gene drives are, are, are a way of pushing it through a, a population, even if it's deleterious to that individual, even if it stops it reproducing so much, or, or at all, or perhaps it could do th something like stop a, a virus from infecting it, or have some other change, stop it reproducing quite so much. So that technology, as Peter described, has not been utilised yet. We've had no field releases of that technology yet, but certainly the genetic engineering approach where we modify crops or mosquitoes is being utilised around the world and is, is proving to be effective. So, I mean, I know some of your modelling work, you've also looked at the interplay between a, a gene drive and current 
control mm -hmm. methods. Uh, so how would these sit alongside? Is this a replacement for, for 1080 drops around the place, or is it, does it work alongside those? They could be utilised in combination. You might need to do things like drive populations down with pesticides, for example, and, and then release a gene drive in, into the area. Or you may be able to do something like release a gene drive on its own that'll sweep through a population um, quite a, effectively in, in many circumstances and not have to use pesticides. It's very difficult to spread a pesticide around an area without having some sort of non-target effects. The gene drives and genetic modification appear to offer a much more precise, surgically sort of precise almost, a way of tackling pest control. And I think that's probably what everybody here wants to do. We, we want to get into a position where we have the best pest control outcome for the least <coughs> non-target effects in a population. Brent, what's the government's current position on this technology and, and, and do you think that that position might affect the development of this kind of technology here? You know, it's always dangerous for a government employee to talk about government policy. <laughs> but, um, I mean, we're, we're still dictated by the Hazardous Substances and New Organisms Act, um, which, is, which has been around for quite a while now and, it, and I think you could describe it as very restrictive. So, so Tame, if we're going to revisit that conversation, what, what do you think the government needs to do if we want gene editing to be part of pest control efforts? I feel like we've started this conversation and all of us are on board with gene editing and the whole conversation swinging that way, um, which is a dangerous path to go down because we kind of swing society to say, oh, it's great, it's good stuff. Um, um, but I've got a vested interest in the sense that I'd love to see this technology and explore it. Um, but we need to have it. I'm happy to put my Ficaro on the table and let um, more neutral people discuss and see if it is something society is, is ready for. Hmm. <laughs> In, uh, I think, Ireland, there's been this approach of having sort of citizen juries or citizen assemblies to discuss issues. In terms of a neutral approach, do you think that's how, how we should, should be going? That actually the role of, of panels like this is to inform about details to, to, to provide perhaps do the research so that we know risks and benefits, but it's not for us to, to drive the conversation, it's to inform a conversation that has to be had neutrally. Yeah, I'd be keen on um, informing the conversation and leaving it for tangata whenua to make the decision. Um, keep government out of it. Government, we've shown our, government has shown that they're not good at protecting our biodiversity. Um, so, and if that's the reason we want to explore this, um, tangata whenua, um, yeah, Māori lived in harmony, well, survived in harmony with our environment for generations, um, centuries. And so, you know, they've got a, a responsibility to their whakapapa. So I think if we're going to go on that track, that's where I'd like to see it. Uh, the pests that we have in New Zealand are so often actually treasured species elsewhere. Do you want, you know, is this a problem? You know, you, you're um, bloodthirstily wanting to kill wasps in New Zealand because they're a pest. In Europe, they are treasured by a very small community of weird people. In Australia, possums obviously are an endangered, as, as treasured as some of uh, the tanga we wish to protect here. If we're going to gene drive them, do we need to take into account the views of the Australians? Do we need to take into account the views of a small community who like wasps in, in Europe? Yeah, yeah, of course we do. It reinforces to me that conservation of these sort of decisions are really social issues. They're, they're not a technical issue. The technical stuff you can solve, this is a social issue. And, and when you're talking about social issues, you need to take quite a broad focus and a broad piece of thinking around how do you, 
how do you approach this and what are the risks and how do we account for them? So absolutely we have to take that into account. How the hell do we have a national conversation that doesn't, doesn't end up with advocates pushing stuff and people and businesses pushing stuff or it doesn't get tainted? I, it's, it's almost impossible under our current structures. I, I'm really curious as to, as to how would you do that? Anyone want to, Araha, do you want to have a crack at how we would do that? I think um, in New Zealand in particular, we have this unique situation because of the legislation that we can have genuine discussions here because we're not at a point of having to say, therefore, do you agree or disagree? We're still in that amazing space that not many other countries are in where we can just take in the information, absorb it as we wish, and sit on it. We don't even have to reach a decision yet. We can sit on it and we can keep informing ourselves and keep reflecting on the technology. Um, I firmly believe that the decision rests with kaitiaki, with the people on the land and that our role is to ensure that all the options that are put on the table for them to decide on have gone through a really rigorous scientific and ethical process. Um, but where, uh, how do we, you know, we, we need to communicate this very complex technology to the people who are affected, the people who, are, who really need to make the decision. Those, and, and I think the, the kaitiaki is the, is the right word here, those people who have have responsibility for the land. How do we do that? How do we get across these complex ideas and the risks and benefits? Um, it's quite simple, really. It's, it's always the messenger, not the message. Um, so having getting the right people in front of the right audiences. Um, so if you were to come to my whānau in Ngāti Tarawhai, um, if, if the message was the same, but if it was a government official, they'd get turned around pretty quickly where if it was a researcher, they might get a welcome. Um, whereas if it was um, a Māori and the message was in te reo, um, that would go down a lot better. Um, regardless of you know, all the information being the same, it is the messenger, quite simple. I think most of us will agree eh, it's messenger, not the message necessarily most of the time. Mm -hmm. It depends if they're trying to sell me something. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the thing, though, is that sometimes it does feel like people are trying to sell you something. And when you had someone going, no, 1080's good, 1080's good, it had the opposite effect. People were saying, oh, actually, I feel like you're trying to sell this to me. It must be a lemon. Whereas if it was a, a trusted member of their community that would say, oh, I know a bit about 1080, they'd say, okay, tell us. And then they'd tell him the exact same messaging. But they'd say, okay, cool. You're not selling it to me. You're just talking. I like it. So I think the same principles could be applied for gene editing and gene drive is that don't go out and force the message or try sell it as um, get the right people to have those conversations with their communities. I think people are realising that these sort of issues are more complex. They're not a simple thing, you know. So it's not a black and white response. It's not a black and white answer. It's actually, there's a lot of complexity around it. And I think society's growing up a little bit and they're able to grapple with that complexity and, and think through these ideas on a much more mature stage so I, I don't I don't think it's as black as white as it used to be when I was younger maybe that's because I was younger and we also recognize that um, genetics is a broad field you know and, and and there's lots and lots of stuff we want to look at and think about and and I think we talk about it in conservation but often when you talk to people about genetic modification or gene editing or the potential in health and you start going well 
if we did this, it could save your grandmother from something, you know, and you'd go, hmm, maybe that's worthwhile. Maybe It doesn't become as black and white then. People really start to reconsider what's going on. And I was thinking on your point, Tame, is, um, as, I, as I, think it, I think the messenger about these things is right, but it, all I could reflect on was we need multiple messengers because oh, we've got a really diverse society now. I'm going to disagree with you. Look how many nutters came out in the COVID stuff. You know, that seemed black and white. But there are some conspiracy theories out there that just, like, make you scratch your head. And heaven forbid this kaupapa gets to those, that small section of society and where they would run with it. Um, so while I think the majority, you know, back in the day, if you looked at a bell curve, you'd be against four, and there was fence-sitters. I think the majority of the fence-sitters will be sort of leaning towards the accepting to explore it. But it's that squeaky wheel of conspiracy theorists that will take gene editing and gene drive and run wild with it. Yeah, I think most people are wise to that, though. It's True. Just, um, it's just how do we... Can we go on to, you know, like social media and, and genetics are tied <laughs> together because how are we going to unpack the false news that gets put out there as well, which is just going to be a really fascinating space. So, so I think this is a really important point, and what I see in the world is this very rapid polarisation of ideas so that the, 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 the mask-wearing doesn't go from, well, you know, maybe it's a good idea, goes to either you should be wearing a mask or you should not be wearing a mask. And, and the conversation over COVID, that seemed to happen remarkably fast. Um, I think this is a real problem. How, one of the good things, I think, about this country is that most of our politics and most of our arguments aren't so polarised. But I think we're getting that way. How, how do we avoid this becoming a very polarised discussion so that we, we can no longer... <laughs> <laughs> We can know. Oh, excellent. Uh, good because volunteering. Because Māori who's really into the treaty is a non-polarising space, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we stop that happening? First of all, it's really important to be non-judgmental. People have their views, and you may not like them, and they might be illogical to, to you, but they're logical to them. What I'm more concerned with, though, is the value system that created the problem that we have. We're dealing with the outcome of a whole bunch of decisions made by humans about importing species into this country that have run havoc. So we don't want that same value system to be the decision makers for what we have to do to fix the problem that they created. So along with this technology, there has to be a total reform of our conservation system there's got to be a decolonising of the conservation system. There has to be a strengthening of the role of Māori, of hapu and iwi, in managing lands and resources. And we just have to get out of the way that we've done conservation here, because it hasn't worked. It simply hasn't worked. One of the, the questions that always arises is, is what risk would a gene editing approach or a gene drive approach have for our native species? For example, you're, you're uh, talking about um, gene driving wasps. We have lots of fantastic wasp species in New Zealand, most of which don't harm us, mm -hmm. uh, and most of which have of intense conservation value. Uh, we have a beekeeping industry. Bees and wasps look pretty similar. So is there a possibility that these, this technology can spread and would affect other species? Is, is, is that a concern? None of us here, I don't think, 
are at a point of saying, let's release a gene drive into the environment. That, you know, that, that's, that's not where we're at. We are at a position where we're saying, hey, this is a technology that appears to have some potential. It may be yet that, that we abandon gene drives or genetic modification for some species as a form of pest control and say, hey, 1080 is the, is the key. You know, I, I can't see that happening, but, but it's, 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 um, it's, it's a possibility that there are other approaches out there that may work better. So, so nobody's saying we need to do gene drives tomorrow. There, there are um, cons ethical concerns around it. So the, the, the big ethical concerns that worry people a lot, well, what if we genetically modify wasps and they get back to their home range? We, we don't want, nobody wants to cause an extinction of a species such as wasps in, in Europe. So people do value wasps in Europe. They are involved in biological control of pests over there. They do do some pollination and all that sort of thing. So is it the case where we could genetically modify populations of wasps so that it only affect New Zealand populations? And even if they did get back to, to Europe, it wouldn't affect populate. That's a key thing that we need to think about. We also get um, asked quite a bit, well, okay, what happens if, if a wasp mates with a bee? And, and I cry a little bit whenever I hear that <laughs> question. Um, uh, but, but I try not to show it. And, and, <laughs> and um, uh, it's not likely to happen, right? So um, what we have done is, as well is, is look at some of the genes that, that we could be potentially modified in wasps to make, for example, them, them sterile. And, and we've looked at those genes and said, well, okay, how similar are those genes in other wasp species? How similar are they in bees or any other organisms that we can come across? And what we've found is, is that we can target genes involved in reproduction in wasps, for example, down to the species level, and even lower than the species level, we can get to the genotype level. So the genotypes that are just in New Zealand, we could genetically ma manipulate those and not affect the, all the genotypes that are in Europe. So this technology has the potential to be precise, quite precise, but if some of those wasps got back to Europe, they could still influence or affect wasps' populations in Europe as well. So, so those are ethical considerations that we need to think about in terms of getting back to the home range, but they wouldn't mate with bees successfully. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd like um, to address the question of animal ethics in this. Is it more ethical for us to genetically drive uh, possums to extinction or to <laughs> treat them with 1018? So, to my mind, the, the mouse plagues in Australia are the interesting ones, right, that, that, are, that are occurring now. You know, so I'm not sure that people are aware of those, that there are massive plague populations of mice in Australia that happens over there. Every few years, um, uh, every seven or so years, they, they get massive plagues of mice, depending on the weather conditions often. Um, gene drives are, are being suggested as a potential approach from those, and, and, and animal ethics groups are coming out in support and, and saying, look, this is a much better way of, of looking at controlling mice populations. So there are groups out there thinking, hey, gene drives could actually be an ethical solution to pest problems. We want to strive to be ethical. We want to strive to be doing things in a humane way or as without causing pain or distress or doing those things that um, would probably get you locked up. You know, you want to you want to be trying to do things the best you can. But the only ethical thing I'm a hundred percent sure about is it's not ethical to do nothing. It is not ethical to let our native species disappear from the face of this earth, and that's the direction we're heading in. So that's not an option. So everything else is really 
our conversation to have and, and us as a society to work out what, we, what, what will allow us to sleep through the night. One thing I would also add is putting humans at the top. You know, in Tao Māori philosophy, we are just part of the circle of life. We are, if anything, we're the lower down on the list. We are the tainer of a lot of these animals. How can we bring those ideas forward and, and, and how can they be respected? How do we make sure that they're part of our, uh, our strategies? Going back a step, so Māori arrived and we made some mistakes and we quickly adapted. We realised that we're not on a migratory path where birds come and go. We have to have a sustainable way of living or surviving in our environment. So it's all about sustainability. Um, eradication doesn't feature in Māori philosophy, um, intentional eradication. It is, it's super bad. Mate mate amua, the Māori word for extinction, it is, a, is a big reminder that that's a bad thing to do, is to eradicate a whakapapa. Um, so if we're talking straight Māori philosophy, anything that adds to that eradication, even if it is just on this island, it's not cool, it's not legit, it's not really thing. However, um, gene editing does feature, and gene drive, features within Māori narratives, um, with Māori changing. Have you ever seen the movie Moana, and Māori can change himself? When he did change his, his shape, one time he was wearing a, um, a cloak and he changed himself and that cloak got incorporated into the kiridu that we know today. Originally it was white. And, um, the kiridu basically was, had its DNA changed by Maui. So gene editing does feature in our narratives. Um, but what I'm weary of when I say this is people running off and weaponizing that, going to a Maori community saying, You're, it's in your DNA, I heard this guy talk about Maui, so you should be accepting of this. Some of the core principles around Mātauranga has a lot to do with using resources <laughs> respectfully. So being aware of the, the whole environment in which a species exists and ensuring that it is um, well taken care of. And with that, Mātauranga is also an advanced sense of risk management. Something that I really wish that decision makers ha had applied before they imported all these species that are causing havoc. The risk management, it's the proactive, stop it before it becomes a problem. Um, and thinking through long term, what are the impacts of bringing in red deer just because somebody wants to hunt them? What's the impact that this is going to have over a 50 year or 100 year time frame? So being able to look ahead into the future to consider the future generations, being able to see a species and how it exists in a whole ecosystem landscape and how species rely on each other and the relationship they have and the relationship we have with them. All of that rich knowledge actually helps make informed decisions that I would say are a lot less damaging to the environment than the value system that's operated to date. Are there other considerations that we, we need to bring forward? Other than decolonising the conservation system, <laughs> <laughs> returning lands back to the Hapu Iwi, repealing the Wildlife Act. I find it so bizarre that a government asserts ownership over species. I actually find that incredibly weird. And there aren't a lot of countries where this is the case, where, where there's this blanket ownership 
of indigenous fauna and eggs, the eggs, the feathers. So according to our legislation, the way that it's written now, our weavers, um, they have to go through all sorts of registration processes to access um, feathers from native birds. And their resultant beautiful kākahu or kōrowai, theoretically, government owns. Now, how bizarre is that? It is so over the top, and it doesn't help us make good decisions about the best interests of species when you have that as an overarching value. So we really just have to deconstruct um, this, this value of owning in order to feel that that's how you do conservation. Because best practice conservation in many other parts of the world is when people conserve when people have a vested interest in the lands and you have community-based conservation areas and less of a government control system and more of a people control system of which indigenous peoples play a major role. Okay, I'm opening it up to you. Ask that burning question or throw a brick. Tell us what we're wrong. Hello, yes. I'm uncomfortable with the idea that Māori are the only true conservationists. I mean, there was a, a big destruction of native forests before Europeans arrived. The moa was extinct. The harst eagle was gone. So I think we're all in it together. And the idea that my children aren't, their views aren't taken into consideration because they don't, they probably don't have any Māori blood in them, I actually find a bit upsetting. Yeah, interesting you, you, you took that from Mount Kōrero because um, that wasn't the intention of it. Um, and I think this is quite often the case is that when it does come time to talking about manamotuhake and tino rangatiratanga, um, people get offended or find offence when none was intended or find threats when none was intended. So I'm sorry if that was the case because um, by all means, um, yeah, this, these taonga are for everyone and they are for your children, for everyone's children here if you do have children. We'll go back to the treaty. Um, how at the moment um, our Taonga species and the, the treaty or Te Tiriti, either one was promised our possessions and our, our Taonga. Um, Māori would have full sovereignty, full rights over their, their Taonga. Um, but now we have to fill out a form to get um, those species. Um, so my, my argument was against the government system um, having control of our Taonga. We, you know, by and large, it is our, it is our stuff. It is our taonga. Um, um, so if I could recommend anything is yeah, have a ch check out of um, Ko Aotearoa Tene, um, which it goes into a bit more discussion on that. There's been decades of talk about uh, using sterility to control pest populations by chemical and surgical means. You know, it comes up with cats, it comes up with the Kaimanawa horses, but it never seems to come to anything effective. And so a bit of a review of that perhaps. The sterile insect technique um, is, is something that has been used around the world to control pests like screwworms. Screwworms are a fly, it lays maggots that burrow into animal skin 
and, and eat, eat them, attack them, and can kill them. Um, so uh, in, the, in the US, they initially developed uh, the sterile insect technique, they call it. They irradiated the insect, they made them sterile, released lots of males, and those males mated with females, and then only sterile eggs were produced, and the population was eventually eradicated in, in large parts of, of North America. So it's an effective technique. That has been now developed into a, a genetic modification for mosquitoes, where the mosquitoes are now reared in the laboratory um, and they're fine in the laboratory because they're reared in conditions where they have um, an antibiotic that they're reared with, and that antibiotic means that they're fine. But when they're deprived of that antibiotic and released into the environment, only males are produced. So in that sort of circumstance, that's a, a modern approach to the sterile male uh, system where, where, okay, that's a releasing a genetically modified organism, it'll eventually die out in, in, in the population. So they've done that in Brazil, they've done that in um, Florida, doing that in Fl Florida at the moment, and, and, in, and using other approaches such as by inoculating the mosquitoes with a Wolbachia bacteria species, they're doing that in Indonesia and have lowered um, uh, disease incidence, dengue fever in, in Indonesia substantially. So there are different approaches involving the sterility, not necessarily a gene drive, but the sterility that can be effective in pest control, um, and either by genetic modification or potentially um, utilising a, a bacterial species. Peter has is, is, um, uh, got some work involved in looking at uh, trying to do that to make Varroa mites, which are a pest of honeybees, resistant uh, to or stop passing on deformed wing virus at the moment, I understand. So uh, that, that's, um, so that, that, that's, that's where, so we, we're thinking about those sorts of approaches in New Zealand. They're not necessarily genetic modification, but that circumstance is, is one where inoculation of a bacterial species could work. Sometimes people get quite concerned about these things at a sort of an abstract or conceptual level. Um, you talk about gene editing and it seems like it could be quite a polarising thing and people say, I, you know, I don't want to be involved in gene editing, it sounds terrible. You're saying that people on the panel are sort of uh, interested in exploring this in New Zealand. We need to characterise this a little bit more, work out what harms and benefits might be and then we can make an ethical decision. So sometimes at a more concrete level, people can find agreement, whereas at a theoretical level they might be disagreeing. So I'm just wondering what, at a concrete level, exploring this would look like in New Zealand so that people could get an understanding of, okay, a next step for this might be we do this trial in this place, doing these kinds of things, and here's what that would look like. Uh, what we've been doing uh, at, at, in our university is some modelling approaches, some, some mathematical modelling approaches to try and see how this would lower pest populations and how it would sweep through pest populations. Would pest populations develop resistance to, to these? So we've been looking at genetic variation that might or might not confer resistance to these sorts of approaches. So, so there's, there's those sorts of techniques that can be utilised. We can take it a, a step further to develop uh, some genetic modification work in the laboratory under very strict lockdown conditions that, that you could utilise for more wasp populations, so a different species of wasp, and, and see how it works in those wasp populations in the lab without going into the field environment. There, um, our funding proposals, like many funding proposals in New Zealand, have not been successful at the moment, and, and I do wonder if, if that is because there is just this mentality they're never going to release a gene drive or never, never do genetic modification in New Zealand. So I, I don't know if... The, I, we don't know why our grant proposals haven't been 
funded. Think, I do think that, that um, uh, we can only do so much by mathematical modelling, by looking at, at genetics. We do need to do some, some laboratory work at times where we, we utilise this technology and show, okay, we believe it can be effective at least under strict lockdown conditions. I think it would be a big mistake to hinge everything on genetic modification. It's like um, I, I have this dream of being an investment banker sometimes. So what you do when you're investing is you, um, is you put a whole lot of stuff and you put some stuff in some really safe investments. You take some moderate risk investments with a moderate return and you do some high risk investment with high return but you don't put all your money there because there's a good chance you'll lose it. And that's a little bit what like gene, gene drives like. Not genetics. Genetics is much more safe than that. But that gene drive is that high-risk, high-reward stuff. Um, Phil, you, you said it's, it's possible to target specifically, I think you, you're talking about gene drives mm -hmm. with, with German wasps, just the subpopulation in New Zealand. Um, I'd like to know, for other species, stoats and possums? Um, so I'm, I'm confident that the answer is yes. Within any invasive species population that you get, so you get an introduction of, of stoats or ferrets or German wasps or common wasps or whatever, it's a subset of the population from the native range. So, th so there is this founder effect where there's a limited amount of genetic diversity in the introduced range compared to the native range. What we need to do then in, in terms of a gene drive, if we want to, we want to be specific and precise about it, is, is focus on that limited amount of genetic variation that's in the, in the invaded country, New Zealand, and, and do a comparison to what exists overseas and then target the, those differences within the population. We, we, we found some genes in wasps that that would be possible. These wasps in New Zealand came from Europe so um, there would be some populations in Europe that would be affected, but not all populations in Europe. And I think the same with hedgehogs or ferrets or stoats or whatever. We could probably find gene targets within those invasive populations that wouldn't be present in all of the native range. And we've done, so we've done that work in terms of wasp populations. We've gone to Europe, we've sampled wasp populations from Europe. We, we know the, the distribution of those genotypes we can do that, that sort of work, and, and that's what we need to do for, for ferrets and possums and, and whatever, to, to try and ensure some degree of safety around it. Uh, kia ora. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge this evening. It's been amazing to listen to. Um, you've kind of already touched on it a little bit this evening, but I'd really like to hear a bit more about what you think an ideal decolonized conservation model can look like. It sounds like something that is really inspiring. I've been a member of the Options Development Group, which is a group that was brought together by the Director General of DOC to review the general conservation policies to um, make DOC a better treaty partner. And the reason for doing so uh, wasn't just a benevolent reason, it's because there have been a number of recent court cases uh, involving decisions that DOC have made about concessions where um, the courts have said that DOC didn't act as a good treaty partner. And it's because of Section 4 in the um, Conservation Act, where there's a treaty clause, and the Supreme Court has said that that clause is absolute. So it's not a question of you balance everything, including the treaty. It's that you actually have to take 
into account in a very serious and systematic way the treaty and then you <coughs> make decisions. So we have met, Tame is on that group as well, we've met over um, a nine month period now and looked, we, we went through conservation policy, looked at conservation practices, the legislation, we've come up with a set of recommendations which essentially amount to the decolonization of, a, of the whole conservation system. But another way of, of referring to it is just to say it's a fundamental reform. So you don't have to use the term decolonization for some that seems to, to trigger things. Um, but, but really what it's saying is this system doesn't work no matter what angle you look at it from, it's not working. So do we stick with the system and just watch it continue to not work or do we radically change it? And if we're going to radically change it for a fit for purpose Aotearoa, what would that look like? So because of all the treaty settlements and the fact that we have a treaty means to us that it would be a treaty based partnership between Māori and the Crown, where everyone has a role, but it's, um, it's a different system to what we have now. So it does mean reviewing the classifications of our protected areas, looking at those, those lands that could be better managed, um, not just in iwi hands, but privately. Um, in other words, sort of keeping the same quantifiable amount of protected areas, 33%, but changing the ownership nature of that, of those protected areas. Looking at the governance system across the New Zealand conservation boards um, and, and removing this notion of owning species, both in the sea as well as on land. So that's a, that gives you an idea. But we're about to publish our report, which will be made public and you can read all the recommendations and all the background and all the input that we, we looked at in order to get to that place. I think one of the other fundamental changes I'm seeing in conservation now is uh, when all our legislation was set, it was very much about um, people and nature were, tr were separate and they were treated separately, like how do we control people's access to nature, how do we, how do we um, control their interaction with it, and I think that we're on the cusp of change and that leads into this as well, where we're seeing people and nature interacting together and the understanding that we are part of that broader system. You can't treat it like a can't treat it like a Gary Larson cartoon where they've got preserves and you ever seen that one with the big preserve jars sitting around the landscape? That that's a very historical way of looking at it. And so that's another shift that's feeding into this as well. Okay. It's very briefly your question, sir. Yeah, um so I understand that none of the panelists, you guys aren't ready to to be an advocate or or firmly the other way for gene drives at this stage. How far away are you guys from getting to that point? And and what is it that like you think needs to be done to, to get to that point? I think um, I would hope we get to a point where the science does have a real role in informing the public of, of what the risks are and, and what the benefits could be, right? And, and I think we need to, to, to frame that against not doing anything in terms of what, what those risks are, as, as Brent pointed out earlier, or the risks of carrying on 
only controlling uh, pests in 6 to 8% of our conservation heritage, which is what we do with 1080 at the moment. Is that about right? 10, 10%. We're up to 10%. Awesome. Um, we need to do better than 10% of our conservation. We're forgetting social science as well. Um, there's probably a, another step that we need as well in the, the, the chain of events. I There was a time that I was a huge advocate. I still am an advocate for 1080. Um, and that came with its own repercussions about that small sect of society that came at me. Um, but I had a son recently. He's two years old now. But when he was born, I got hate people wishing t um, cancer on him because I supported 1080. So we need a lot more support around the social science that if I'm going to come out and say, yeah, I support this, so, you know, we've done the exploration, um, that I'm not going to get those people come at me. Um, it's fine for me, I can handle it, but not a two-year-old son, not a two-year-old boy. Um, and that's where I think the conversation needs to hit as well, in addition to the, the, the technical science is the social science. No, I, I want to ask a question in the opposite. In, in 30 years' time, if we don't do this, what do I say to my two-year-old son um, when, when we have a, 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 a huge numbers of extinctions and things that, that aren't there anymore that he can only look at in textbooks? Um, the ethical question of if we don't, um, and that extends much beyond just the three predator-free species. We do have a tendency to abdicate our personal responsibility when we think a government department's in charge or something, and I would like to challenge everyone here to take that personal responsibility for our wildlife on board and that personal responsibility that you hold as a New Zealander to do what you can do that will give you confidence to talk to your kids when they're 18 years old or something and said, Dad, what did you do? What did you do when you had your time? So um, I think that that's a, a really good uh, point to end on. Conservation of all our native species is a personal responsibility and and while we talk about losing this battle, when I was a child, kākāpō in this country were functionally extinct. They're not now, through amazing work from the Department of Conservation and Mana Whenua. And so I think that partnership is a really good leading light showing us that actually we can recover our native species and we can make this place better. We may need new tools and we need to start those discussions. So um, I'd like to thank my fantastic panel uh, so if you give a round of applause to Kame, to Phil, Aroha, and Brent. Nice work. Uh, I'd like to thank um, all of you for coming out tonight. It's uh, very kind. I'd like to remind you that this uh, work was, this was organised by the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge, who uh, are leading thinkers in this area and trying to, to change the way we do things. And, of course, this is brought to you by the New Zealand International Science Festival, who are an outstanding place to ensure that these conversations uh, begin. So thank you very much for your time. Have a lovely evening. Thank you.